This is reaction. Movements, moments, and monsters of the reactionary right. The Business Plot, Part 4. Credulity Unlimited. On November 20th, 1934, in a secret executive session in New York City, Chairman John W. McCormick and Vice Chairman Samuel Dickstein called three witnesses. General Smedley Butler, Gerald McGuire, and Philadelphia Record journalist Paul Comley French. The testimony began with Butler, who recounted all of his interactions with Jerry McGuire and his associates beginning in July of 1933. The committee chairs were shocked, naturally, because even though they had heard testimony about fascist activities and propaganda throughout their investigation, nothing so close to an actual transfer of power or change in government had been uncovered. They had heard rumors of something about a fascist plot to depose Roosevelt, but there was nothing to back them up. Nothing before Smedley Butler came along. And Butler was a very credible witness, given his military history, his popularity, and his reputation for being almost annoyingly honorable. But the allegations of just one man against a host of very important and powerful people were just that, allegations. Which is why Butler had contacted his old acquaintance at the Philadelphia Record. Paul Comley French had written about Smedley Butler's work as the director of public safety in Philadelphia, where he spent a year on leave from the Marines fighting corruption and mob activities in the illegal alcohol trade. This was during Prohibition. French was also a fellow Quaker. But he was worried that the story was too improbable to be believed, and that without hard evidence of a real plot, Butler would be ridiculed, and him right alongside. So, Butler told McGuire that French was a dependable fellow who was sympathetic to the anti-Roosevelt cause, and McGuire agreed to meet up with him at the Grayson Murphy brokerage firm to discuss his plans. What French wasn't prepared for was how much more blunt McGuire would be with him. Maybe it's because McGuire was starting with the impression that French was already on his side politically, or because he'd known that Smedley Butler wouldn't have tolerated an out-and-out attack on democracy, or maybe just because his mind was a bit muddled or he was just not very smart. Who knows? But McGuire told French everything he told Butler and turned it up to 11. He confirmed Butler's entire story, but added in that all the weapons and ammunition that they would need to pull off a coup were going to be supplied by the Remington Arms Company, on credit through the DuPont family, who had a controlling interest in Remington. And then, according to Paul French, McGuire got really candid. We need a fascist government in this country to save the nation from the communists who want to tear it down and wreck all that we have built in America. The only men who have the patriotism to do it are the soldiers, and Smedley Butler is the ideal leader. He could organize a million men overnight. He then told French all about his studies in Europe and said that he'd learned enough about the Nazi and Italian fascist movements to set one up right here at home. But this was patriotism, he assured French. Only fascism could fight socialism, which was the real threat. This was the same argument used by fascist movements in Europe, so why couldn't it apply here too? 
And McGuire even had a great idea for how to handle the country's massive populations of unemployed people. And it was already doing wonders in Germany. Forced labor camps. After French had confirmed Butler's testimony and given his own shocking additions, it was time for Jerry Maguire to give his side of things. And his defense was, basically, that he had no idea what Smedley Butler and Paul French were talking about. He and Smedley were close personal friends, he said, and they had talked about how the current military force was too thin, and world events in general, but certainly not any fascist coup. Yes, Maguire had tried to get Butler involved with the Legion's Committee for a Sound Dollar and Sound Currency because they wanted a popular public figure to help them get attention for the movement, and they did offer him some money for his support. He had also asked Butler to consider running for commander of the Legion. And Maguire had, in fact, gone to Europe as his boss requested, but it was only to study the economic situation, not any fascist or veterans' movements. But this last piece was directly contradicted by the letters he had written to his financial backers about various organizations throughout Europe, including the Italian black shirts, the German brown shirts, the fascist party in Holland, and the French Croix de Feu, the organization he had told Butler about earlier. Maguire also had a very difficult time accounting for large amounts of money that had been in his possession at various times in the previous year. When he was asked about tens of thousands of dollars that he had been given or had withdrawn, McGuire would insist that they were to buy bonds, which were never purchased, but he couldn't produce any receipts or any witnesses who could confirm what he did with the money. After his second day of testimony, Dickstein told reporters that McGuire was hanging himself with his contradictory testimony and the things that he had been forced to admit by sheer evidence, things that he had not voluntarily offered to the committee. Then, VFW commander James Van Zant, whom Butler had warned that he would also be asked to lead the coup, announced to the press that he had been approached by what he called Agents of Wall Street to lead a veterans organization that would spearhead a fascist coup. He also corroborated Butler's testimony that, according to the agents, former Legion commander Hanford McNider and General MacArthur were also under consideration to lead the veterans group. On the third day of testimony, Jerry Maguire argued that he was in Chicago, not New Jersey, on the day that Butler claimed he dropped a stack of $1,000 bills on his hotel bed. But committee investigators found that this was also false, that Maguire had called on Butler that day, and that his financial records showed he had at least $16,000 in cash on him at the time. All told, McGuire was unable to account for various financial transactions involving more than $100,000. Representative Dickstein told the Chicago Daily Tribune, McGuire is shielding somebody, I believe. Probably a lot of people. McCormick and Dickstein said publicly that the committee would like to interview McGuire's associate Robert Clark and Clark's attorney Albert Christmas. Yeah, Albert Christmas about the exchanges of funds, but both men were on vacation in Paris and could not be subpoenaed until they returned. At the time, the law only allowed a committee based in Washington, D.C. to subpoena people from abroad, and since they were in New York, they couldn't do it. And Clark said that he and Christmas would return once they were summoned. 
a nice and convenient feedback loop. Eventually, Christmas did return on behalf of Clark to clear up the ridiculous accusations made against him, and he testified on the very last day of the committee's investigation, January 3, 1935. They only asked him specifically about money that had been given to McGuire, and nothing about any conversations or letters regarding European fascist movements. But there was one interesting exchange. Clark and Christmas had given McGuire around $65,000 for traveling expenses between June and December 1933. McGuire testified that he had returned 30000 of it to Christmas, all in cash. But when he was asked about it, Christmas said that McGuire had never returned any money to him. He told the committee, I would say he is in error. He is mistaken. Now's the part where I tell you that whether or not you believe any of this story that I've now spent over an hour telling you depends entirely on how much you believe Smedley Butler and Paul French. Their testimonies, the corroboration from James Van Zant, and the questionable financial records of Jerry Maguire are the only evidence that we have. There are no letters between the millionaire lieutenant Robert Clark and J.P. Morgan talking about how cool it would be to throw a fascist coup. No leaked memos from the American Legion National Executive Committee. The American Liberty League didn't publish any pamphlets calling on veterans to join together and drag Roosevelt out of the White House. Plenty of historians have doubted whether or not any of this went beyond some harebrained scheme cooked up by McGuire and McGuire alone. But you should also know that part of the reason no other evidence exists is because the only people who had the power and the authority to find it, for some reason, didn't even try. Based on Butler's testimony, French's corroboration, and McGuire's contradictions and inability to account for over $100,000, McCormick and Dickstein were convinced that the plot was real. The committee chairs had promised a thorough investigation of the plot, which was now being called the Wall Street Putsch in the press. Dickstein told the press that the committee would subpoena over a dozen of the people Butler had named in his testimony. And then they didn't. They did call in Frank Belgrano, a San Francisco banker and the commander of the American Legion, but he was dismissed and his testimony was not even taken. When the committee chairs were asked by the journalist John Spivak about this, Dickstein said he didn't know why Belgrano's testimony wasn't taken, and McCormick wouldn't comment. None of the people Butler asked the committee to subpoena were ever summoned. McGuire's boss, Colonel Grayson Murphy, Bill Doyle, who had been at the first two meetings, Robert Clark, James Van Zant, none of them were called to testify. Even Butler's mentions of most of the major players in the plot were stricken from the congressional record. It was strange. The committee shut down immediately after Albert Christmas was questioned, calling no more witnesses. But it also summarized its findings, saying, Evidence was obtained showing that certain persons had made an attempt to establish a fascist organization in this country. There is no question but that these attempts were discussed, were planned, and might have been placed in execution when and if the financial backers deemed it expedient.
The committee ultimately scrubbed Butler's testimony of any of the big names he implicated in the plot, including former Democratic presidential candidate John W. Davis, whom Robert Clark had named as the gold standard speechwriter and who was a leader in the American Liberty League, former New York Governor Al Smith, whom McGuire had told Butler would be involved in setting up the American Liberty League, which he was, and any mention of MacArthur and McNider as alternates to lead the veterans group. They also redacted McGuire's prediction about the formation of the ALL, him assuring Butler that the president would go along with the takeover because he would be loyal to his class, that the president crossed his name off the list of speakers at the Legion Convention, and all of Paul French's testimony about Remington and the DuPont supplying arms for the takeover. It's worth noting how we know that so much of the testimony was deleted from the public record. Even today, we know that we don't have the full text of the hearings, and what we do have is through accident. John L. Spivak, the journalist I just mentioned who asked about Belgrano, was at the time researching Nazis and anti-Semitism for the Marxist news magazine New Masses, and he asked Representative Dickstein for the Un-American Activities Committee's public documents. But included in the documents he received were unedited, unredacted versions of Butler's testimony, which he printed out and then reported on. You can hear some of Spivak's reporting on the business plot at patreon.com slash reaction podcast, and I should tell you that he is not some reliably objective journalist. He was an outspoken communist who wrote from a very particular perspective, and he never tried to hide that. He was definitely prone to exaggeration and drawing some pretty dubious connections, but he was still well-respected as an investigative journalist, and when he broke the unredacted portions of the business plot story, it made a lot of people sit up straight. He was pretty heavy-handed with some of the Jewish financier bits, but he also reported heavily on anti-Semitism in right-wing movements, so do with that what you will. We'll talk more about this dynamic on the Patreon feed. Some historians have speculated on whether or not Spivak's deleted transcripts were genuine, but I think that's largely biased because he was a communist. Representative McCormick, at least, was convinced enough that they were genuine that he canceled an interview with Spivak after he told him that he had them, and refused to even deny the content of the redacted portions, let alone discuss them. Spivak is said to have met with Butler personally and shown him the unredacted portions, and Butler was furious about what had been left out. He said as much on a Philadelphia radio show in February of 1935. So all of this leads me to believe that the transcripts are genuine. Spivak was one of the few journalists who took the story seriously. Most mainstream press outlets treated Butler's story as either a minor interest or an outright farce. Of course, then, as today, most large publishers were closely aligned with big financial interests, so it isn't terribly surprising that a plot by wealthy Wall Street bankers to unseat a popular president wasn't something they would want to lend a lot of credence to. The Depression really changed the shape of news reporting, as smaller, more financially independent papers saw their funds dry up and were consolidated into big media empires. Many of these media moguls, like William Randolph Hearst, were extreme reactionaries, especially as FDR's New Deal moved further to the left, and Hearst's biographer called him Hitler's press agent in America. 
Hearst gobbled up nearly a quarter of the nation's Sunday paper readership. He and other large newspaper men like Robert McCormick, who owned the Chicago Daily Tribune, were vicious red-baiters who were much more interested in publishing stories on the communist threat than on the growth of fascism in the U.S. In fact, it wasn't out of the ordinary to read front-page headlines praising Mussolini for defeating communism and building up Italy's economy. The New York Times was, as it is now, considered the gold standard, so to speak, of reporting, but even it was friendlier to fascism than we might imagine today. It's a bit remarkable that even though the committee chairs made it clear that they took Butler's claim seriously, the press, by and large, did not. It probably didn't help that a year earlier, he gave a speech to a veterans group telling them not to trust the capitalist-controlled press because it suppressed information that made their corporate overlords look bad. Which is exactly what they did. The New York Times' early coverage of the plot had the air of neutrality, but subtle cues in the reporting left readers with the feeling that it wasn't too serious. The words plot and fascist were surrounded by quotation marks, and the denials of people implicated by Butler's testimony, like Grayson Murphy, Thomas Lamont of J.P. Morgan, and Jerry Maguire were foregrounded, while the accusations themselves were downplayed. And in an article published just after Maguire's second day of testimony, The Times reported that Butler himself conceded that he did not think the plot, again, quotation marks, unduly serious unless the committee had received additional information from other sources. This is not something Butler is known to have said anywhere else and is completely out of step with everything he did say publicly. To be honest, it seems like they just made it up. And to make things worse, the very next sentence is an actual quote from Butler. Hell, you're not surprised they deny it, are you? But by putting the two statements right next to each other, they make Butler seem a little unhinged or self-contradictory. The rest of the Times reporting was generally dismissive, suggesting that the whole thing was a nothing burger. One article titled Credulity Unlimited read, What can we believe? Apparently anything to judge by the number of people who lend a credulous ear to the story of General Butler's 500,000 fascists in Buckram marching on Washington to seize the government. Details are lacking to lend verisimilitude to an otherwise bald and unconvincing narrative. The whole story sounds like a gigantic hoax. They didn't even publish anything about the committee's final report, which said in very clear language that the plot existed. Coverage in other major papers like the Los Angeles Times and the Washington Post were roughly the same. Thin coverage that used quotation marks to make the plot look hypothetical, and heavier emphasis on the denials of powerful people than on the allegations themselves. And the Associated Press, considered then as it is now a fairly objective reporting outlet, ran the headline, Cocktail Putsch, Mayor Says. It read, Mayor LaGuardia of New York laughingly described today the charges of General Smedley D. Butler that New York brokers suggested he lead an army of 500,000 ex-servicemen on Washington as a cocktail putsch. The mayor indicated he believed that someone at a party had suggested the idea to the ex-Marine as a joke. 
Other smaller papers that didn't have the same levels of big corporate backers were a bit more fair to Butler and the findings of the committee. The Hartford Current, whose liberal editor Maurice Sherman had criticized the bigger publications for existing solely to make money and who sold their scaly product much as a fish is sold at a wharf, that paper published the details of the testimony in a way that emphasized the seriousness of the allegations and made it clear that the committee chairs took it seriously. The Current continued to report on the committee long after the bigger newspapers had abandoned it. And in another strange twist of this already winding story, the Current reported that the Justice Department was investigating the plot. What happened to that investigation is a total mystery. But by and large, the Current reported on Butler fairly, and even favorably. And then we get to the publications that were not so nice to Butler. The most glaring one is Time Magazine, which published a first-page story on December 3, 1934, titled Plot Without Plotters. It opens with a ridiculous narrative description of Butler leading his army of veterans up to the White House, followed by past commanders of the American Legion and General MacArthur, with J.P. Morgan and his partner Thomas Lamont in a shiny limousine. Butler then politely tells Roosevelt that he is to appoint him Secretary of State and give him the executive, and that Roosevelt will now be a figurehead. Roosevelt, of course, assents. Then they go on to viciously ridicule Butler, saying, No military officer of the United States since the late tempestuous George Custer has succeeded in publicly floundering in so much hot water as Smedley Darlington Butler. The article then goes over all the controversies of Butler's career, painting him as a publicity hound, just as he knew they would. And to top it all off, the magazine included three photos. J.P. Morgan, laughing and jovial, like a grandpa. Grayson Murphy, handsome in his World War I uniform. And an unflattering photo of Smedley Butler in civilian clothes with a finger stuck in his ear. Left-wing publications were, as you might imagine, friendlier to Smedley Butler. And although now it's considered a reactionary right-wing rag, in 1934, the New York Post was a very liberal paper with a largely working-class readership. The Post published several articles about the plot that were very flattering to Butler and treated the investigation seriously. They spent a lot of time outlining Smedley Butler as a character as an honorable man with a respectable record and a devotion to upholding democracy. But they also concede the point that it's not likely that the United States or the Roosevelt administration was ever in any real danger of being overthrown by a fascist coup. A topic we'll discuss next, in the conclusion to this series. Other left-leaning publications like The Nation and The New Republic gave favorable coverage to Smedley Butler's testimony, and the story fit in well with their wheelhouses of corporate corruption, exploited workers, and looming fascism. But none gave the plot as much coverage as The New Masses, the paper John Spivak wrote for. And Spivak's coverage was unique because it actually traced a network of associations to the major players that Butler named. Again, I'll go into greater depth about this on the Patreon feed, 
But maybe what's even more important than Spivak's coverage is the fact that it was completely ignored. Or, if not ignored, it was considered untouchable. According to Spivak, and I'll quote, Several journalists expressed regret that the exposés were appearing in the new masses. When they quoted from one of my stories, solely on its news value, their editors cut the material out and advised them that quotes from that magazine might make readers say the paper was spreading red propaganda. So great had the fear of communism and red propaganda become that even editors who did not swallow all of it themselves went along because it was a popular attitude. And here's where we get to what I think is actually the most important thing about this story. Because the fact is, most historians who cover this topic don't believe that we were on the brink of a civil war or that a fascist takeover was imminent. True, those things could have happened, but that's just a small part of the story of the business plot. If you believe everything Butler claimed about McGuire and his Morgan cronies, the actual execution of the plot was still a ways off. The superorganization of veterans didn't exist yet. McGuire only claimed to have $3 million so far and would have needed to raise much more money. And Roosevelt was popular with average people. It would have been tough to convince Americans that we really needed a radical change in government once the New Deal had started working. So, yes, it's alarming that the financier class was looking to mobilize veterans to take control of the government, if you believe the story, anyway. But the reason the plot was brushed aside and forgotten is more alarming. It was simply more in vogue, and more palatable to the elites, to fearmonger about communists than fascists. Sounds familiar. The business plot gives us an important window into that moment in American history. You can see how divisive the issues of economic reform and government spending were, and how desperate the ruling class was not to have their power and wealth curtailed. The red-baiting was fierce, and anything that smelled of social and economic reform was a sign of looming communism. You can also see how our poor treatment of veterans had a much wider effect, both in the economy and in the body politic. You get a real sense for how aware many people were of the corruption and corporate greed that fueled the war machine. And it's a little uncanny, because all of those things are just as true, if not more so, today. We look back on the New Deal as a triumph of good government. And it can be depressing when you compare it with the crumbs we get now from Congress and the president, any president since, really. And yet you see the same reactionary freakout anytime something aimed at helping poor and working people is proposed. The red baiting hasn't gone away, not by a long shot. Perhaps more unnerving, you see groups like Patriot Front and the Three Percenters, or read reports about neo-Nazis organizing in the military or in police forces. And you're struck by that old cliché. The more things change, the more they stay the same. As for Smedley, he spent the rest of his life speaking out against the looming war in Europe. He was a staunch isolationist. Navy ships should never stray more than 200 miles from the coast, and airplanes no more than 500. The only justifiable war for him was a defensive war. And from our standpoint, World War II is probably the most justifiable war we ever fought, given the horrific crimes of the Nazis. I think few people today would argue that we shouldn't have intervened in World War II. 
But from Smedley Butler's perspective, the correct thing to do was not go to war, but stop our business class from collaborating with the Nazis, making them a tougher enemy for Europe. And given what he had seen and experienced during his 33 years as a Marine, it's hard to blame him for wanting to stay out of a conflict that had nothing to do with us, no matter how brutal. On June 21, 1940, just as France was surrendering to Hitler, Smedley Darlington Butler died of what was likely stomach cancer. In the months before his death, Congress had allocated more and more money to military defenses, money that Butler knew was not at all intended for defense. He smelled the coming war, and had spent years lobbying politicians and military brass to take only purely defensive measures. Before his death, he told his son, Smedley Jr., I think that I should have stayed with my own kind. Whether he meant the rank-and-file soldiers who loved him or the peace-loving Quakers who raised him, I'll let you decide. Interestingly, the New York Times wrote an obituary for Butler, and it was sort of mixed, outlining his heroism and incorruptibility, but also the Mussolini incident and his failed bid for Senate. And at the very end, a small paragraph that reads, There was still another episode, as late as 1934, when a congressional committee investigated reports to the effect that General Butler had become mixed up in attempts to form an American fascist organization. I guess that's one way to put it. Smedley Butler left behind a strange legacy. To some, he was a laughingstock who overheard a conversation at a cocktail party and turned it into an elaborate anti-government plot. To others, he was a hero for single-handedly foiling a fascist takeover. His anti-corporate and anti-war activism made him popular on the left, and yet, and I just heard this from a friend as I was finishing writing this series, he is apparently still taught in curriculum for Marines in training as an upstanding example of bravery and service. For some reason, they don't mention his most famous speech, War is a Racket. The business plot will always be a bit of a historical mystery. And in fact, there are a few more mysteries to it that I couldn't quite weave into the story here, so I'm going to post a sort of odds and ends episode on the Patreon feed. All the weird little questions and clues and strange turns that didn't make their way into the main story. But the failure of the McCormick-Dickstein committee to go down the rabbit hole and see just how deep it went leaves us with a lot more questions than answers. So who better to ask about this whole affair than Representative John W. McCormick, the person who probably knew more about the plot than anyone? Here's what he had to say years later. If General Butler had not been the patriot he was, and if they had been able to maintain secrecy, the plot certainly might very well have succeeded, having in mind the conditions existing at that time. No one can say for sure, of course, but when times are desperate and people are frustrated, anything like that could happen. If the plotters had got rid of Roosevelt, there's no telling what might have taken place. They wouldn't have told the people what they were doing, of course. They were going to make it all sound constitutional, of course, with a high-sounding name for the dictator and a plan to make it all sound like a good American program. A well-organized minority can always outmaneuver an unorganized majority, as Adolf Hitler did. 
He failed with his beer hall putsch, but he succeeded when he was better organized. The same thing could have happened here. Thanks for listening to this episode of Reaction. If you like the show, please rate and review it, and consider supporting my work by visiting patreon.com slash reactionpodcast. There you can find all the episode scripts, as well as bonus audio content that supplements the main episodes. Follow the show on Twitter at Reaction Podcast for episode updates and commentary on current events. Send your questions or feedback to reactionpod at gmail.com. This show is produced by me, Brittany Gill. Until next time.